Hi, uh, welcome to the show. How about you introduce yourself? Hi, um, my name is Zubi Ahmed. I'm the managing director for Smash Mouth Games. I'm also uh, the creative director for the company. And uh, yeah, that's me. <laughs> okay, so what does uh, Smash Mouth Games do? So we, at the moment, focus on uh, pick-up-and-play games. We like to make um, games which are focused around uh, instant interaction and um, fun um, for variety of different platforms from PC, uh, ideally console, and uh, mobile platforms too. So when you say, um, so you're, you're, you're focused then on quick play games pretty much? Does that, would that describe your studio? Um, or is there a specific um, type of gameplay that you're focused on? A lot of the gameplay is around kind of that instant pick up and play uh, nature but then you know there's a lot of hidden depth with with the games that we've got um, we want to kind of give I mean the, the the whole interaction with gamers today has kind of changed compared to where it was like five years ago or ten years ago because yeah. of the the whole market uh, you know you, you only have to look at uh, a lot of the games that are out at the moment on the mobile platforms just to recognize that and I know that I personally like to kind of play a vast majority of games from, for example, pummeling lots of time into a console game or, yeah. you know, certain types of PC games to, you know, very quick pick-and-play games on, on, like I say, like a, um, a mobile device like your phone or an um, iPod Touch, for example. Um, the games that we make at the moment um, are based on, you know, pick-up-and-play so it's easy for you to pick up and play them, but at the same time, there's a lot of depth. So it doesn't necessarily mean that they're kind of short-term games. You know, the 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 games that we like to, to make are games where there are there is a lot of hidden depth as well. Okay. And how did your how did your studio get started? So let's let's go back to um, when the studio was started and what inspired you guys to start the studio. So I have been working in the games industry for. Goodness. I started writing for a magazine in the UK called Edge Magazine, uh, freelance, back in '96, and then I started in a games company called uh, Digital Image Design in '97, uh, '98, I believe. And I worked my way through the games industry, and a lot of the games that I made, you know, they were fun to work on, great people. Um, but I guess I, you know, I, I noticed the market changing and yeah. the risks that these companies that I worked for were less inclined to take kind of risks on something new and different and, and I guess that's where the company started. I, I left um, working for a large game developer in 2006 and at that point I was in a junction going what, what do I want to do, do I want to step back in and work for someone else or should I you know maybe look at setting up a company and start focusing on you know taking some risks and making some games that you wouldn't necessarily see on the market unless you know smaller developer or a developer who who has got that kind of gumption to do it would do it and you know I guess that's where our company came about um, and you know so. what what changes so you said that you were working at these other game companies and you just felt that the market was changing what what changes did you feel were happening and um, yeah I mean starting your own company after already working in other companies is you know it's a it's a very different step so you know, what were the two or three different things that actually, you know, completely motivated you or even your initial team to, to get something going? Because everyone says they want to do their own game. You know, they always yeah. want to do their own thing, but you guys actually yeah. did it. So, 
Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, quite a lot of people say that. It's quite, it's quite interesting that you know, it, a lot of people kind of say, yeah, I, you know, I want to do this, I want to do it, and we actually, we 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 did it. We we took that step out and we actually did it. And yeah. you know, what enjoying these tough times, it is kind of, you know, we should be proud of ourselves to to say, yeah, we actually did it during this kind of very very tough economic time. Um, back in 2005, late 2005, 2006, you know, the Xbox was on the scene, the Nintendo yeah. Wii was on the scene. Uh, you know, they just come on, and uh, at that point, you could start to see where the market was going, especially with what Nintendo brought to the table. And at that point, with the whole um, mass market bandwagon of gesture-based gameplay, um, and you know, the iToy been out already, and you know, the whole in- instant interaction with um, gaming was becoming more and more apparent. You know, what was once alien to um, a gamer of today, for example, if you give a, a 16 button joypad like for example the Xbox 360 <laughs> controller to to someone uh, who doesn't normally play games they, they, they'd look at it like it was alien but now if you give it to them they're more inclined to pick it up because of uh, this leap in terms of gaming for example the, the mobile devices touchscreen devices, gesture based gaming have allowed this kind of uh, open door to you know gamers or people who weren't necessarily gamers to go okay you know, we'll, we'll take that gamble and we'll play this game. And once they once they're on board, it becomes an acquired taste. That their, their tastes become more and more sophisticated, and they like to to play more ga- or games which have more and more depth. And fairly soon, they develop a, a, a kind of um, learning curve in terms of the games they play. They go, you know what? I'm I'm getting a little bit bored of maybe playing these types of games. I want to go on something a bit more complex, and so on and so forth. And back in 2006. Um, we recognise that okay, now is potentially a good time to, you know, start something and but maybe do something different before everyone else has that opportunity. I mean, we were fortunate at the time as well because you know Xbox Live was just kicking off as well, and that gave us a lot of motivation to go look. You know, there's a lot of developers who are starting out very early here, so if they can do it, why can't we? I mean, that was a, an inspirational point as well. You know, looking at other developers to say, well, if they could do it, so can we. And at that point, were you looking at the flash market? Um, Were you looking at even bypassing the consoles and just saying, hey, we can reach a lot more people online through flash? Well, flash is, you know, it's massive in its own rights. I mean, you only have to look at all of the portals uh, that are available uh, today, today to look at the, the games that are on there. I mean, you know, Newgrounds is yeah. one of my favorites um, mainly because obviously we've got a strong association with them and the, and the games they put out and the quality of the flash uh, products they put out is very very high um, and I think that flash is a very good way to kind of develop something very very quickly but you've got to have the right people involved you know who are fluent with action scripts and good artists and then once you've got that you know you're fortunate to kind of go through short development cycles to come up with very very quick games and and then you can put them out but the the, the thing is with uh, flash games you've got to have a, a decent business model behind you yeah uh, so that you can uh, you know obviously make some money to pay the bills you know yeah um, so when you guys when you started out this company was it just you or did you have other people on like the other people that are at the studio right now were they also the initial founders or did they come along later no, the, the couple of the guys who we started the company with were um, they they started the company and then uh, a couple of the guys went off to do their own thing. 
Um, one of the guys is still with us. Um, he comes and does some stuff as and when he can in a part-time nature. Um, but a lot of the guys who are with us now are, for example, uh, Tim, who's the studio manager, and Stephen, who's the art manager, uh, were, in fact, uh, previous students of mine uh, who excelled at uh, university. And subsequently, I offered them positions, and they've proven themselves time and time again with all the challenges that we faced in this, uh, you know, very dynamic environment. And uh, they're very, very capable game developers and, you know, young entrepreneurs, as, as far as I see it. Yeah. So, you know, you know, let's, uh, you know, a lot of the listeners who are listening, they have these dreams to, I mean, everyone talks about starting their own studio, making their own games. Some, some of the listeners are definitely doing that. You know, how did you feel transitioning from, you know, having that stable uh, game development? You were already in the game industry. And, you know, how did it feel then to jump in and, you know, or actually jump out and do your own games? And what were some of the challenges that you faced? Honestly, it was it was frightening and exhilarating at the same time. And I'll tell you why. When you're working in a large company, um, you haven't sometimes got that flexibility to do what you really want to do. You know, you sat at a desk, um, you're kind of working within... Um, requirements and time frames and with people that you may or may not like and you know a large company kind of obviously you know they, they give you all the perks and whatnot yeah, but at the yeah, same time there's a lot of compromise yeah. yeah there's a lot there's a there's a lot of compromise you make in terms of what you actually want to do and you know after you do it for a long time you start questioning your own integrity and I guess that at that point in my life I was questioning look, is this right for me? Am I compromising my true happiness here? Is money the, the root of my happiness? Or is it something greater than this? You know, do I want to, essentially, I mean, I, uh, this is a cheesy way to say it, you know, kind of be the master of your own destiny and choose what you want to do and, and to have the bold step to, to say, okay, at the risk of X, Y, and Z, I'm going to go, I'm going to try it, I'm going to go for it, you know, and see what happens. Now that's, that, that's, that's it. Now that you have the... Um hindsight of you know these past four years since you started do you wish you would have done it earlier i mean is that something that or do you feel that that was the right time for you know based on your own personal development where you could actually take that leap right it all boils down to experience at the end of the day and i know that i'm working for example at the moment in an institute and there's a lot of young people who are kind of starting out their own companies and whatnot and i applaud them for having the the motivation to do that but there's a lot still that they have to learn and yeah. you know the only way that you you can do that is uh, actually by uh, i call it paying your dues you know you've, you've got to potentially get the experience to understand the pitfalls and the successes of working in a, in, a, in a company, albeit large or small, and working on projects. Because that way you gain credibility when you come to do it yourself. And that way, for example, on paper, it shows you've paid your dues when you're talking to, you know, money men or the bank or, you know, your accountants or even other companies, uh, other developers, other publishers. They see you as more credible because you've got more experience. If you are doing it fresh, then you've got to be really good at what you're doing yeah. and you've got to you know you've got to have something killer straight from the word go otherwise you know you, you my my advice is to get some experience definitely to, but, to add weight to what you want to do 
to be fair, a lot of the game studios now don't even allow or offer the experiences you need to run your own successful studio. I mean, a lot of the technologies and console development and platforms that they're focused on aren't really um, where a lot of the new money is being made. You know, like you look at a lot of the studios, if a, if a student was to go into a studio right now and develop something for a console, that's really not going to give them the right amount, the right experience for what they need to do to develop something on Facebook or Flash or on these mobile devices. Right, I would I would disagree with that, and I'll tell okay. you why. Yeah, definitely. it's all about it's all about transferable skills. Yeah, learning how to work within a project, um, within a certain technology, you learn processes, and okay. it's all about those fundamental processes and working practices that then you take away with you, and then you apply to the next project. And the next project from there. And once you once you understand how to work within those processes, you develop a core competency, a core skill set, so to speak, like a Batman utility belt, yeah, um, <laughs> and, for a game developer. And yeah. then once you've got that utility belt, you can apply it to anything. You can step away from. I mean, that's what happened with me. I'm not a programmer. Um, you know, I'm a games designer by trade. But by learning these processes, um, you know, you, you learn as and when and who to apply them with. And then successfully kind of go, okay, this is what we need to do at this time because I recognized when I was working at this company, this process worked here or this process didn't work here and so on and so forth to apply to, you know, where, where you are currently in your current phase of your project or, you know, your company, for example. So you seem to be in an environment where you're seeing a lot of students or younger, younger people starting their own game company right now. I mean, is that... Is that what you're seeing a lot of, or I'm seeing I'm I'm I mean I've been teaching now for what nearly six years maybe maybe more, um, and it's it's interesting seeing the people that I've taught and as they're in education develop games at the same time, and there's only been a very few uh, select few who have been successful in doing that. One of which, as I mentioned uh, to you, um, we worked with. Um, what yeah. a guy called uh, Tony Lavelle, who's uh, called EXP on Newgrounds. He's um, he did early work with us on uh, the Flash game, which is on Newgrounds, and uh, yeah, he's a he's a fantastic game developer. Um, but yeah. I guess it all boils down to experience and skill. And Tony was a very very and is a very very good, um, if not excellent, Flash Flash programmer and game designer. He he comes out with some fantastic ideas. Okay. It's just meeting other students like that that it's it's rare and I yeah. know that the students now that I've worked with uh, a lot of them have gone on successfully to get jobs in the games industry um, you know for example students that I've taught are fortunate to be working now at companies like for example Traveller's Tales, Rockstar Games, uh, Climax Studios um, you know the, these are to name but a few but there they are gaining this kind of you know, knowledge and experience, which they can then apply yet later on in their development, yeah. whether or not they choose to kind of step away and go, we want to form our own company or not. But I mean, a lot of the guys who I work with now, um, you know, they've got high hopes of what they want to do. Some of them just want to get into the games industry full stop. And a very few, select few are going, okay, we can make a game now. But I guess the guidance and support that I can give them is to say, okay, you know, maybe you should look at what you need to do and slow down a bit and try and identify your gaps and, and you only understand that from actually being on a project full time and that 
experience you only get from a job, I guess. You know, can't they can't they make games while they're in school? I mean, Flash they can they can access Flash, right? They can pump out a Flash game, put it on Armored or some oh, of these God. other Flash. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Okay. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying okay. that if you if you've got that skill, if you can yeah. pick up Flash, for example, or if you can pick up Unreal Script, or if you can pick up like a tool called Hammer, you can make levels, you can make like small games whilst you're doing this now, and you can put them out yeah. onto the you know that's the beauty of the internet now and these portals. They allow you to kind of put your projects out there and you know, even iPhone games. You know you can make an iPhone game and put yeah. it out there and, and or Xbox Live. Or should I say Xbox Indie Channel, where you can put out, you know, X and A games. That's the beauty of uh, the portals that we've got now. I'm just saying that from my experience of having worked with students, yeah. you know, there's a, I, I teach a lot of students, and that, that you know, unfortunately, there there are only like a few very rare exceptions who have got that kind of um, motivation and skill to be able to do that whilst they do their studies at the same time. So if you know, if I'm if I'm addressing anyone who has got that aspiration to do that then I'd say don't give up on it you know do your best to try and get something out there but at the same time bear in mind that you know you've got studies you've got responsibilities if you can maintain them all and throw yourself into it then you you'll get what you you put in you know the more you put in the more you get out um you know you're in that unique position where you've seen a lot of students you know some great some could use more improvement you know what are the characteristics of the best student game developers game designers that you've seen they the the best student developers I've ever worked with are ones who are developers at heart and they are people who are willing to basically take on board three fundamental rules and I always hark back to these three golden rules whenever I teach any students which are don't be precious take feedback don't be ambitious um, be realistic about your development and also be enthusiastic and you know these developers or students um, take on board all of these golden rules and you know they apply them a, a, a fundamental base a fundamental perspective to everything they do and it, it's good to work with them in that respect because um, they, they, they have a very sensible very methodical and at the same time very creative and you know enthusiastic way of designing and implementing and creating games and I think it's it's very good to see and the super talented students are they working with other students when they develop games on the side or when they're designing games or is it primarily a independent like a individual endeavor it depends um, I've seen very talented students uh, work within the remit of the course um, for example, some of the, the courses I teach on at the moment, um, part of the course remit is to make games. So I've seen them make games within the course remit. I've seen them some very talented student make games on their own. And I've seen some talented students make games with other students outside of, um, you know, university. Um, and, you know, basically they come up with projects, you know, in their spare time. And, you know, it's, it's very, very good to see. And we're in this rare situation where, or, you know, this new situation where literally students can pump out a game in a week and start making money the next week on their game. So is that something that you've seen uh, with some of these students? Um, is that something that you encourage so that students get the whole experience of kind of running their own mini game studio? Um, I, it's, it's a difficult one for me to answer that because I've only seen a few rare exceptions where I am where that's actually happened 
and that in all fairness that the, the, the students who have done that or the people who I know that have done that whilst they've been at university have ended up leaving university yeah. uh, early <laughs> yeah because yeah, they, they've <laughs> actually they've actually gone you know what um, I'm actually managed to make a living out of this sooner than I thought so yeah. I don't need to pursue my um, uh, kind of uh, academic career so that's my that's my experience of well, that. How do, how do they feel? I, I mean, I think that's see that's something that even when you started in two thousand five or two thousand six, it wasn't necessarily a, as obvious that that's possible, you know. And I think is that something that you know you've done? You do teach a lot of students. Is that something that you now mention to students? I mean, not to leave university necessarily, but literally that they can have their own studio up in a week or two. Not really, no. Okay. I mean, I try and focus on what we, you know, for example, at each institute I teach at, we focus on what needs to be taught. And I think it's very important for students to, um, if they do come on board to a course like that, to maintain that, um, you know, first and foremost, so that they walk away with something very credible and very tangible. And most importantly, the experience they gained from that, because they can then apply that experience. Now, how, within that experience, I know some students, for example, I'm potentially typecasting now on a broad basis some students like to study and party some yeah. students you know study and work uh, and some students throw themselves into their studies and some students you know for example study work and throw themselves into extracurricular activities which are related to what they're studying and it's those groups of students but they are few and far between who are the ones who you know do well in their studies and at the same time you know they have something on the side to say look you know I've applied what I've learned and now I've got this project what do you think and then I'm you know you see, it's very encouraging to see when it when it does happen um, the, the only thing I, I'm you know the advise is that you know if you step away too early if you're going to step away definitely step into an alternate environment which offers you um, you know reinforced learning then stepping away and going you know if you're going to step away and try it on your own then there's a lot of uphill battles that you've got to fight. And I'm yeah. saying that after having been in the games industry for God knows how long before setting up my own company. And I know that the last four or five years has been an incredible uphill battle just to get where we are now. You yeah. know? So, so maybe something for the students that do decide to go permanently on leave, at least maybe keep in touch, keep in contact with the game dev community or indie community or at least have potential mentors or people who've been through the path. Definitely, definitely, okay. absolutely, yeah. And um, so now let's generalize that. So, like you said, there are, there are a few exceptional people who can who can kind of break out of the traditional path, do their own thing. You know, you've decided to do your own. You decided to do your own thing. What were some of the challenges or feedback that you got from your environment? I mean, how did you did you have any criticism, or were there any concerns from people around you that said that hey, you should actually you know keep working for other people in the games industry and that you shouldn't go off on your own or you can do that, you know, um, maybe later on. Well, this is me now. I mean, after having worked in the games industry and setting up a company, now the, the problems I faced were ones of finance, um, resource, and subsequently um, business model and outlay, uh, or should I say the route to market. Now, in terms of say for example finance at the start I'm doing this you know the company was being um, 
the projects on Gaku was being done in our spare time whilst you know the people who were working were either doing freelance jobs or for example I was lecturing at the same time and, and doing the company stuff as and when I could um, we had to worry about getting resources as and when we could for the different jobs that needed to be done we had to worry about um, working developing a, a, a business model figuring out okay if this comes out on console which console and how we're going to make our money within which avenue within the console I'll be at full retail if we can get it full retail via a publisher via Xbox Live Arcade or PSN for example or WiiWare uh, and that's just the console route then we went and thought you know should we go down the PC route and subsequently over the last four years and I'm sure you recognize this the market has changed dramatically yeah um, and you know it's still changing it's still evolving um, very very dynamically and you know we, we uh, from our business perspective might be operating within a different business model you know this time next year because the market is changing that dynamically yeah. um, you know, you only have to look at like cloud gaming, for example. That that is potentially one 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 step towards an alternate future of gaming, um, and you know, business models have to adapt accordingly. So we've had to look at all of these different things and be very very um, adaptable and evolve with the the community and the industry. Otherwise, we get left behind. And if you get left behind, that's it. You know. Yeah. So what what game did you guys decide or did you decide to do at first when you first opened up the studio? Um, it was on Gaku at that stage. I mean, there were a couple of ideas floating around for like a shoot 'em up, uh, shoot 'em up construction kit kind of thing. Um, but we ended up going with the on Gaku, um, the music game. Um, it was called a number of different things before we final finalized the name. Um, but yeah, we we started off with that because at the time rhythm action games were were you know they were kicking off. We had like games like Res, um, Guitar Man, and subsequently Guitar Hero was just becoming popular on, for example, the last generation like PlayStation Two. Um, you know, who would have thought back in two thousand five, two thousand six? You know, it's become now so. You know, globally massive. Yeah. Um, yeah. You, you just like couldn't or over a billion. Told. Yeah. Like uh, like a huge industry. Exactly. Um, you know, can you for the audience out there, can you explain the gameplay behind your first title? Well, on Gaku. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Um, I mean, to sum it up, what you've got to do is um, pop, pop the bubbles to paint the perfect picture, and the game is based around you play a character called On Gaku, who's a musical note. And you have to pop these musical bubbles by hitting the appropriate button on the keyboard or the joypad if you choose to play it with the joypad. And as you do that, in time with the music, uh, paint is or paint is uh, available from the bubble, and it, it flies off into a background canvas and reveals a section of a picture. And the more bubbles you, you hit successfully in time with the music, the more picture is revealed. But there's a twist. Um, the the game narrative dictates that there is a, an evil picture and a good picture and the first image you see is an evil picture and for every note you hit successfully you paint over that with an alternate image which is a good image and um, was this idea just originally spec'd out or did you have to go through a lot of prototyping to come up with the final design 
No, there was a lot of iteration. I mean, yeah. if you were to see the first pre-visualization movie we did in 2006, it was completely different to what we have now. Originally, back then, Ongaku was uh, in the middle of the stream where he is now. There were feedback monsters which approached from behind Ongaku for every note you missed, and if they caught up with Ongaku, uh, you'd get uh, damaged, and the notes you hit would shoot up towards a musical stave and fill in missing missing notes on the musical stave. I mean, the idea for Ongaku came to me whilst I was in a hospital waiting room, believe it or not, and I was watching a bunch of kids play with one another of these abacus kind of toys um, where they're moving like these beads around like a wire system and I got the idea of what happens if there are a bunch of these beads chasing a single bead within on this like wire and the original pre-visualization showed Ongaku on a wire that you had to kind of follow almost like those old games where you've got a a coil uh, which is kind of magnetized and you've you kind of got to keep it around this metal beam and if it touches the metal beam it makes an alert noise and that was the original kind of idea, but then subsequently that evolved into keeping Ongaku within two lines, almost like he- keeping him within a stream. Um, and then the, we moved the uh, character to the far left, we got rid of the feedback monsters, um, we added the paint mechanic, uh, because the background images were, you know, it was just a case of just having a generic background in there, but then we thought, why don't we tie in some interaction with the background? Yeah. Um, and that was that was the thought process behind it. Were these decisions made after you were while you're doing user feedback, or was this just within the the team itself that was deciding on each round? Hey, change this or change that or something. It came from uh, feedback processes and almost like the gameplay evolution within the team. So you know, we we make the previous, we'd look at it, and then for example, some of the developers we showed to get feedback on said, "Hey, that's good, but why don't you consider this or why don't you consider that?" And, you know, we did. We, we took on board their feedback and went, you know, this is good feedback. So, you know, the game isn't fixed. We can evolve it. You know, we're not working towards a time frame at the moment. Um, we're doing it in our spare time. So, yeah, why don't we evolve it? And that's how the game evolved. Um, it did get to a stage, though, in 2009 where we were, you know, making very strong business contacts. Uh, we had some money put into the company. And at that point, we had to go, right, you know what, guys? We're now working towards a strict development. Uh, we've got to get the game out by this time, so any features have to be kind of pretty much done and dusted by this point here. Um, and it doesn't sometimes work like that in game development because sometimes serendipitously some you know cool feature might come along when you know something isn't planned for. And you know if you've got the luxury to consider from a time perspective, is it worth? kind of putting it in at the cost of something else because it's stronger than you, you you can't ignore that opportunity but yeah and the platform then what was it targeted towards xbox or was it targeted towards pc or flash initially the pre-visualization movie we did was with on flash then we did the um prototype that went onto Newgrounds um and won the rock out competition that was done in flash as well and that was uh primarily paid on the PC. That then uh, facilitated the WiiWare license for us, so we started looking at ways of getting the game onto the Wii. And then the business contacts that we made as well um, started con- you know, saying, look, you know, consider the other consoles as well, like the Xbox 360 and PlayStation. Uh, but we were developing primarily on PC. 
And finally, when we hooked up with our uh, current PC publisher, Blitz um, Games, and we're, we're published through the Blitz One Up Initiative, they suggested, look, if you've got a PC dev, why don't you consider putting out the first version out on PC? Um, because that's what primarily where your, your game is based. So we thought, yeah, why not? If, if you guys were getting success with the Flash version, you know, did you guys consider just going through the Flash portals? You know, why, why deal with the consoles? Why deal with the headaches of, um, you know, PC development, which is, which is still relatively harder than Flash development uh, when sure. you already had a working Flash version? Because the working Flash version went up um, just to prove the concept, just to establish a, uh, an audience. Yeah. And subsequently, if we were to make uh, a more revised version, which we've still got in the pipelines too, um, one of the things that we had to consider was the business model attached with that. I mean, a lot of the, the games that are put up onto websites like Newgrounds, for example, you know, they're, they're developers who are making games and putting them up there for free, and it's the portals themselves who are, you know, um, have methods of incorporating, like, for example, advertisements to sustain uh, the, the portal itself. Um, so subsequently, the business model side of things would come on into issue if we were focusing primarily on Flash. Well, did you guys look into sponsorship? I know that some portals will try to get exclusive sponsorships for, um, sp- like, Flash games. We did. We did look at um, some element of sponsorship when we went to Casual Connect in uh, 2008. Uh, we met up with quite a few of the publishers who can, you know, mention to us, you know, if we're wanting to make some more Flash products, then maybe we should consider that. But at that stage, what we'd done is we'd already put about a year's worth of development into uh, a PC version, which could be cross-ported onto um, something like the consoles or even the PC. Um, and it provided more functionality than Flash could provide, which is why we chose to stick with it. And, you know, in hindsight, do you feel that it was wise then to focus on the PC and console versions uh, over the Flash version? That's a good question. Um, I suppose it boils down to the people that were involved. And at the time, um, I know that if, for example, we were still working with um, some, you know, for example, the Flash guy I mentioned to you before, then that's something I would have liked to have, you know, carried on with. Yeah, definitely, um, given the opportunity. But at the same time, you know, I had to consider the team and the team skill set and the the way that we wanted the game to evolve. And in hindsight, I guess it's kind of a double-edged sword in the fact that I, I, don't, I wouldn't want to have given up uh, the PC version that we've got, but at the same time, I wish that at the same time I had the resource to carry on with additional functionality with the Flash version, but I had to make a, a business call at that point. So Yeah, um, so for the audience out there, I know in the pre-interview we discussed kind of the, the evolution of how this product got developed. Um, well, let's just go over that again. So you, you developed a pre-visualization of the gameplay itself, can you explain to the audience what that, you said you did that in Flash, can you explain what that entails? Because um, I think that's a different game design methodology than what most people are used to. Okay, so the first thing that we, we did was yeah. we storyboarded a lot of the game ideas. Um, I mean, we, we followed a basic process of design, which is listing out all the tasks that needed to be done, okay. uh, researching all of the elements involved 
um, in terms of the gameplay, uh, the competitors, um, the future market, the platforms. We then went away and we, once we had this kind of knowledge, we then started brainstorming ideas for the game. And, and coming and this up was, with... This was in 2006? Yeah. Okay. This was in 2006. Uh, and th this process is something that I instill within my students today, which is to follow this process. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a kind of um, process that can be applied to anything. And in game development, you'll find that you incorporate the, any one of these four phases at any given point in game development, which is problem ascertaining what the tasks are. Research is pretty much what it says on the tin. Um, applying your ideas in a kind of very... Uh, synergistic nature and then finally getting as much feedback as possible and refining your ideas um, and that's what we did with Ongaku that pretty much sums up how we made the game yeah. and so the, so yeah. so just in, in answer to your question in terms of previs so with the core team there we we started brainstorming ideas for the core elements and that was part of the task list so the, the task list was coming up with the, the main avatar, coming up with the core gameplay mechanics, coming up with any kind of basic narrative element, if there was going to be any, and within the remit of a rhythm action game, how can we provide an additional twist to make our games, you know, appeal to the audiences that we want to appeal to, and at the same time, make it unique, so it doesn't look like we're potentially, um, you know, just another clone of yeah. another game. Yeah. And... So you came out with this video. Did you so did you release the video on Newgrounds or, or how did that work? No, we didn't actually. Okay. We we the get the the video itself. I mean, if you see it now, you'll see it's it's just a very rough video. I mean, it took a yeah. took, you know a, a couple of months to kind of get it together with the team that we had. I mean, the guys that we were working with at the time, you know, they were coming to grips with. Uh, the new version of Flash that was out at the time, and yeah. they, you know, it was it was a it was a interesting process over that summer to get that previs video. But it, that was a very useful video because we we showed that to people, and people then got the idea, and then people then went, you know what, yeah, have you considered this and this? And then we took that feedback on board, and at the same time, they, you know, people who saw the video also went, you know, I'm interested in working on this product, you know, and it allowed us to kind of open the doors to them to come on board. So if you had to do it over again, would you have focused on the video first or would you have just gotten up a quick prototype in Flash and just had people play that? Um, again, I suppose it boiled down to the, the competencies that I had at the time. And when I say that, I mean the, the resources and the team. So at the time, we were looking to recruit a programmer and the guys who I were working with were good at, at demonstrating Flash um, movies versus coming up with implementing gameplay. So if I know I had like a, a programmer who was versatile in, for argument's sake, um, let's say working with Flash or something like uh, a scripting language like Lua or, you know, implementing functionality in XNA, then yeah, I'd go first and foremost with defining your gameplay mechanics within a process of design and then from there look at, you know, implementing, once you've kind of finalized what those are, look at implementing what the gameplay mechanics are in a, in a prototype and then evolving that prototype based on your design. Great. You, 
you release the video, you get feedback, you get some interest from people. Um, what was the next step after that? Um, after releasing the video, we we, sh we we showed the video behind closed doors to people. Basically, it was literally, you know, we'd meet up with people. Yeah. Uh, we'd show them what the situation was, we'd get their feedback and so on and so forth and then within the resource of the team we'd, we'd take these kind of steps and go okay this is what we want to do for our next version so can we get this in, can we get that in and then from there once we've got uh, a version that we're happy with we'd go okay let's get some more feedback and show this to people and see what happens. Okay. And you were doing these next versions in Flash again? Uh, no, at that point um, from the previous movie, we moved over to um, working on the PC. And, you know, you mentioned winning that competition on Newgrounds. Uh, can you talk about um, how that even came about and, and how did you guys uh, win the competition? Uh, yeah, sure. Well, <laughs> basically, um, it was, I think it's summer of 2007. Um, Tony at the time, um, he was he just finished his, I think it was second year of university and I knew I wanted to make a flash prototype of some of the gameplay elements um, and potentially um, see what we could do with it. And Tony said, look, there's a competition. Um, why don't we enter that competition and see what happens? And so we thought, okay, let's go for it. Let's, let's enter the competition. And at the same time, it's a good opportunity to show the game off. Um, you know, in a, a very quick and easy way to show what we've got so far, translate the PC mechanics over to Flash and get feedback, you know, on a, on a larger scale. You yeah. know, it's a risk at this point, but, you know, let's see what happens. And we it took us 12 days, and it was an interesting 12 days because Tony liked to work in the night. And, uh, you know, uh, he, he'd kind of... Um, I'm just trying to think what was the process. He'd send over a version. I'd work on it during the day, test it, give him feedback, send it to him, and then he'd work on it on the night, and then it was a 12-day cycle like that. And then at the end of 12 days, we had the Flash version. We put it onto new grounds and kept our fingers crossed. And we had some very mixed bag of reviews at the start. You know, some of my friends contacted me and said, look, just give up now. <laughs> what is this rubbish? What is this rubbish you're working on? <laughs> and I was like, thanks crazy. a lot. That's very, yeah, that's very encouraging, that. Thanks. Um... And, okay. you know, some some other people were like, no, yeah, this is cool, this is cool. Um, but, you know, who would know that we ended up kind of getting as as much popularity as we did and we ended up, you know, getting, like I said, it was over 100,000 downloads in, in the short space of a week or two weeks and we ended up then winning the, the Rock Out competition and then subsequently from there we were nominated for Game of the Year on Newgrounds as well. So when your friends called you and said to give up... Um you know, what changes did you have to make? Because obviously that game didn't inspire any confidence in them. So once you put it out on Newgrounds, what changes did you make to make to get it to the point where it did get those 100,000 plays? We and didn't. That's the didn't. thing, though. Oh, okay, interesting. No, we didn't. The, so that's, the version that's that we lesson put out, <laughs> the, vision, the, the version we put out on... No, sorry, let me, let me explain. The version we put out on yeah. Newgrounds was uh, the version that got that many hits. Okay. I wasn't sure if you could iterate on the version in Newgrounds too. N no, no, no. The okay. version that we did on Newgrounds stayed rigid. Um, we did release um, on Facebook, for example, uh, an all, you know, a, a reiterated version, um, oh. which has 
altered backgrounds in, um, but it hasn't got the final gameplay mechanics of the good and bad backgrounds. Uh, we, we made some cosmetic changes, but that was pretty much it. Um, uh, but the people that, you know, uh, and there's a couple of guys who, you know, obviously saw the game, they, they work in like larger game studios on, yeah. you know, AAA titles with very sophisticated technology. <laughs> For them to look at a Flash product, you know, and obviously from their experience of working with me, they were saying, why are you working with this technology when you could be doing this instead? Yeah. You know, it was kind of interesting for them to say that. And, you know, for me to say, look, actually, this is part of something that I'm wanting to do and it's part of a larger, larger grand plan. Let's see what happens. Um, yeah. It's kind of interesting, but yeah. Well, a lot of those developers, console developers, don't still understand that some of these Flash games are making tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars. So... How do you, you know, and this is an issue that smaller developers have to face, is that their peers or, quote, peers in the console don't understand the financial, the financials of these flash markets that have huge upside, huge opportunity with minimal investment. So what, I mean, how do you combat the issues with the fact that a lot of, you know, something like Club Penguin or something like Farmville is making a lot more money than those hardcore console games. That's the nature of the market. That's yeah. that's the whole point of the market. And I, I suppose it's once people and and again, you know, you've got pioneers and potential sheep at the end of the day, and the people <laughs> who are willing to take the steps and go, you know what, we recognise this is something that's going to be the future. Let's kind of see what we can do and establish the future and then people who will go okay this is what's going on now let's jump on board now ultimately you know the people I, I hate to say it but there is complacency a lot of the time in the games industry with people who are working in positions they go this is what we know this is what we want to do yeah. um, based on what we already know and it's kind of difficult for people to take a step back and go okay is this where the market's going or should we be focusing on this instead and if they within their remit can do that or you know either personal remit of their own judgments or whether it's their own professional remit they've been told to do it then great um, but I think that it's 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 a hard thing to do uh, to kind of get someone to snap outside their comfort zone and go right guess what guys stop like try and imagine telling um, the 360 gamers five years ago if you were telling like you know AAA studios and publishers like EA or for example um, Ubisoft or you know these large uh, uh, publishers trying to imagine telling them five years ago guys stop what you're doing now and guess what in five years time the biggest market is going to be on a mobile phone and you're going to be using technology that you you use like two years ago yeah they'd look at you ludicrously and go what you're joking aren't you no forget yeah. it but that's the whole nature of the market now so and it's is the market it, that makes the, the these developers who are in these positions snap out of these comfort zones and go, actually, maybe we should wake up. Maybe we should start looking at these other options. You know? So is it just better for smaller developers who break out of you know traditional game development and go into these new markets to just cut off ties and stop talking to people who are in the older paradigm? No, I think it's useful because okay. you've got to keep in touch with you know as many developers as possible. Um, and uh, to get the big picture, you know, okay. there is, yeah. for example, there's still a retail market out there. There's still a market out there for, I mean, look at the biggest game um, of 
the year last year, or should I say 2010, it was Black Ops, um, you know, and uh, for a variety of different reasons. Um, And in all fairness, you can't ignore that. If if that's still there, then you cannot ignore that. You cannot cut that off and say, let's just forget that (laughs) side of things. You've got to keep in touch with that stronger than ever um, and establish, you know, where things are at the moment to establish where things are going to go. And so you guys win the competition. Um, you know, you developed that game in 12 days or about 12 days, right? That's right. Um, so, and then, but, and, but for the past year before that, you were working on a PC game. Like you were working on the PC version. So did you guys have an epiphany and say, wait a second, we can maybe just pump out these flash games really quickly, you know, in a week or two. And that's where we should go. Just not focus on the PC or the console. Let's just um, move towards Flash. Now, as I said before, the, the difficulty at the time was working yeah, it was with the, the right business people. Model. Yeah. It's the okay. business model at the time. And at the same time was resource, you know, getting the right people involved. Um, and, you know, it's kind of um, unfortunate for us, but fortunate for, like, Armour. You know, Tony decided to go over to America to work for Armour, and subsequently he's done some fantastic projects with them. Um, but I think that, um, you know, to to find a very good, strong, competent Flash developer who's good at not just, for example, programming, but good at looking at the technology and looking at the market and looking at the audience and looking at the current trends and the future trends to establish very good, strong, unique gameplay. They are very rare to find those yeah. developers, you know? <laughs> that's Yeah, that's definitely true. Um, okay, so did you guys, once you guys won that prize, what were you guys thinking at that point? Uh, what did uh, you guys let, decide to do? Let's see what we can do with this now. Now that we've got this popularity and this fan base, you can't just like yeah. let it die. You've got to see what we can do. And subsequently, I emailed uh, Nintendo, uh, WiiWare was just kicking off, and I emailed um, the product portfolio manager at Nintendo of America and said, look at this game, look at what we've just done, what do you think? Do you think it would make a good WiiWare game? And, you know, fortunately for us, they did, they agreed, and we were one of the first uh, people in the UK to get a WiiWare license. Well, did you have to pay for that WiiWare license? I know that some of these console kits can be very expensive. No, even yeah, the, to flash, I mean, so. obviously the kits themselves have a predefined cost and whatnot, okay. um, but you know the, the the terms of our agreement are obviously confidential and whatnot. Sure. Um, but you know, it was it was it was oh. I think a very very positive sign for us for them to look at us as an independent developer to say, you know, we really like your your game and we're you know we're prepared. We'd love to see it on on the on the console itself. So that that was a good sign for us. Okay. So. With the WiiWare, do you feel that that was going to take away focus from the PC version? I mean, how are you going to manage putting this game on multiple platforms? Right. So at that time, we then went, okay, Nintendo interested. Let's look at coming up with WiiWare-specific gameplay because that's what Nintendo, you know, definitely want in their projects. They want to look at making, not just porting over a game and saying, right, okay, you've got to use, for example the the d-pad or the 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 stick on the nunchuck to control the character they want to look at making the game for the Wii so we had to take a step back and go okay if we're going to do this on the Wii how we're going to do it and some of those ideas 
you know, I can't talk too much about them, but you know, sure. it's going to be interesting. 2011, 2012, let's say that. Um, <laughs> but um, in terms of what we had to do with our PC version, that was almost like the stable, the the kind of core version, and then. We, we, we considered, okay, if we're going to take it to the Wii, this is what we need to do. If we have to take it to Xbox, this is what we have to do. If we have to take it to PS3, this is what we have to do. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, during this time, were you thinking about working on other games also? Or were you focused on just that game? Nope. Um, at the time as well, shortly after that, maybe about a month or two months after, uh, that was the start of our next game, which is currently... Uh, reiterated and it's out now on the iPhone called Drag Tag Smash. Okay, and so was this around 2007 or 2008? It was 2007, late 2007. Okay, so you decided to do an iPhone game or a mobile game at that point? Like, um, yeah, can you talk about that more? Yeah, I can. Um, Basically, uh, it was a friend of mine got in touch with me and said that... uh, he wanted to uh, kind of kind of commission us to come up with a game idea for a friend of his who was opening up this uh, uh, kind of it was a kind of a web portal which offered you games and recipes and whatnot. Uh, so I got back in touch and said, "Yeah, we can do that, but you know, at the same time, we get to keep the uh, intellectual property rights." So they were like, "Yeah, that's cool." So. We ended up making a game called, I mean, at the time the game was called Neon Blaster. And we're, we're a bit gutted, really, because we had to change the name uh, because some guy beat us to it to the App Store uh, okay, with, okay. A, with a game called Neon Blaster. We tried to get in touch with him and say, look, you know, we've been operating this game since 2007, but we've not heard from him. And at that point, we, we you know, we had a choice to kind of pursue uh, the legalities of it or just kind of venture forth on an alternate name. And, you know, I think the alternate name has benefited the project now. But subsequently, at that point, we I got together with, again with Tony, and it was a shorter development phase this time. I think it was about a week. We came up with uh, uh, Neon Blaster. Uh, the premise I gave Tony was, you know, I want a game which is like Breakout or Pong, but I want it to meet Space Invaders, um, because one of the things I hated in these uh, in the, the 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 kind of Breakout type games is that. You know, you're shooting the ball off. You have to wait, God knows how long, um, because these static blocks uh, are kind of doing nothing. And then you, you're watching this ball do its thing, and then it has to come back to you. And then Tony went away and said, "Okay, you know, let's kind of look at the way that the ball reacts with you, because it's a bit boring." I agreed, and then you know, we came up with the whole uh, core mechanics of the game, and subsequently we made a flash version, which you can play on our website. Um, you can play the, the Flash version of that game, and uh, subsequently from there we thought, okay, once we finish on Gaku, we'll look at making um, a version of Neon Blaster. Um, and then as the iPhone market developed and the App Store developed, uh, we thought, okay, given the first available opportunity, let's make a, uh, an apps version of uh, Neon Blaster, which subsequently then became Drag Tag Smash. Okay. And... Um, did you have to change? So, when as as the iPhone development or the iPhone app market was developing, what were you guys thinking at that point, and how did you transition into actually developing for the iPhone? Um, because you mentioned that you know you needed to have a developer who was comfortable with the specific platform that you wanted to develop on, and you know iPhone was a relatively new platform, and there wasn't that many or you know, many people 
wouldn't be experienced with that. So how did you guys catch up and develop the expertise needed to develop for the iPhone? Okay, so Neon Blaster went through a couple of iterations. First iteration it went through was on XNA. So we've actually got an XNA version of the game as well. A very, very early XNA demo because we thought what we'll do is we'll make an XNA version and release it on the indie channel. Uh, and that's before the gold rush started on um, the iPhone. Um, and as soon as the kind of gold rush started happening at, at that point, it was like maybe we should start looking at taking this product to the mobile platform because the the, the, the functionality of it as well, uh, the touch screen, just suited the game a hell of a lot. So at that point, okay, um, it was 2009, you know, we were, we're head deep into Ongaku, but I knew that at a point where Ongaku was starting to tail off, I'd have to get some uh, people who were versatile with um, the software involved. And subsequently, we started doing the research and I started then recruiting the core people, uh, Jamie being one of them, who's our um, programmer on that. Um, and he basically really helped us out and give, gave us a lot of guidance and support um, in, in creating the, the iPhone version. Did you guys look into tools to accelerate the iPhone development, stuff like Unity or Coco's 2D or stuff like that? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we've used Coco's 2D. Okay. And... How long did it take to get uh, a basic version of the iPhone app out then, once you guys started in earnest to develop it? Um, we started, first of all, by writing our own... Uh, we started writing our own engine for it first, but then oh, okay. after about three, two or three weeks of doing that, Jamie started looking at the functionalities of some of the other engines available, like Unity and CocoaOS, and then subsequently, we made the port, the call to go with Cocoa SDD. And were there any other challenges as you were developing for the iPhone? Did you have to modify the gameplay any to accommodate? Uh, yes, we did. Yeah. Um, we we've got like a very grand design for the game, and some of the modes that we've got, we split the game up into modes. And the way we developed on the iPhone was slightly different to the way we made on Gaku. We we came up with tiers which are tier 1s, tier 2s, and tier 3s. They're almost like your must-haves, uh, your, your would-haves, and could-haves, yeah? Yeah. And so your must-haves are your core gameplay design. Now, that was essentially our mode 1, so we came up with what was the endless mode, which was the Flash version of the game. So we thought, you know, worst-case scenario, if we have to release a version, what version are we going to kind of get to the market? And it was uh, a reiteration of the Flash game. But we've our grand design has got different modes in there, one of which is called the master server mode. Uh, and that's our, you know, our could have, which is, you know, based on a, a more in-depth kind of a narrative element in there. There's more structured level, more structured kind of power-ups, evolution of the blaster, uh, which is the avatar that you control, and more sophisticated enemies. Um, and that version, you know, is still on the cards, but within the time that we had and within the budgets that we had we thought you know what to do this it's going to have another maybe two months maybe three of development let's get a first version out there and the beauty of the business model with the iPhone is that you can tailor the game in packages and allow the users to buy what they want to play yeah. so that's the, 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 the route we chose and um, how long 
or did, were you also getting user feedback from people? And what, what were people saying while you're getting that feedback? Yeah, we got user feedback. Uh, we were inviting people into the studio to play the game um, as and when we could, you know, getting beta testers um, to kind of take away builds of the game on their mobile devices and kind of getting on, you know, what they had to say about the game. Um, and, you know, we obviously took on board as much feedback as we could. And, you know, as and when we had um, feedback meetings, or should I say compile lists of feedback, I'd give the feedback to um, the, the team and the team would incorporate it, give a version back to me and potentially the rest of the guys who were testing it. And then we go away, we compile more feedback and we go through the situation cycle. Um, yeah. And then and we, we, we got to a cut-off point, though. We thought, you know, we've got to get the game out before Christmas, so we're going to put a lock on anything feature-related, so it allows us time to test and then get the game into the App Store. And so when did you release the first version of the game to the App Store? Um, it came out on, I think, 18th of, 18th of December. Um, we submitted it just two weeks before that, just to make sure, because we knew that there was going to be a rush on... Um, before Christmas, we were also told we've been. I mean, we we've had a couple of conversations with um, Apple regarding this. We've been fortunate to have those conversations too, because we've been yeah. told by OpenFaint that these, you know, Apple don't not necessarily talk to uh, uh, developers like this, and we're we're talking to them in regards to functionality we'd like or require for uh, Ongaku, but. Uh, so uh, in regards in regards to DTS, yeah, um, we I think it was two weeks before Christmas. Okay, and this is two weeks before Christmas of 2010, right? Yeah. Okay. So what were some of the and you started in 2009? What you know? Why was the development process so long? Because some of the other people I've interviewed for iPhone development, they say. Oh no that, no no! Oh. Sorry sorry, beg your pardon. No no no. Um, the development process on, for example, the PC, we had a, an XNA version of uh, Neon Blaster stroke Drag Tag Smash in 2009, but we we shelved that and okay. we started we started th this version in July of 2010. Oh. Okay, okay. I thought you started in 2009, and um, well, that's when you decided to shift. Okay, so that's good to know. Um, so you released this thing um, before Christmas. How did you guys feel at that point? Uh, anxious <laughs> and excited <laughs> yeah. at, at the same time, yeah, obviously. I mean, it's, it's, it's all about getting um, you know, people interested in, in, the in your project. I mean, all of the reviews I've seen for the game so far um, by people who have bought it, um, I've posted a thread up on, um, just bear with me a second, yeah. the thread is on uh, Touch Arcade, um, we've posted a thread on there, and all the people who have seen the thread and got the game, they said it. You know, the game definitely um, is a cool game. Definitely needs uh, more attention, um, and that's very encouraging for us. And um, you know, uh, the, the the kind of obviously uphill battle that we have to climb at the moment is because we're releasing first and foremost on um, the App Store. You know, we're, we're looking at plans of maybe bringing it to the app Android phones as well. Yeah. Um, is that there's a lot of products out there are products out there that we're competing against and you know those products are potentially either established IPs or they're you know they've got more coverage so you know we've we've got our work cut out for us to get as much coverage um, and the word out there so people will will you know take get the game and, and play it buy it and play it and you know hopefully recommend it 
are you guys also going to do weekly or monthly updates um, to keep the content fresh in the game? We do, actually. Uh, interesting you say that. We've got a another update planned very, very soon. Uh, I've posted, a, posted the information on the thread regarding that um, on Touch Arcade. Um, basically, the the up, update is going to have reworked tutorials, just giving a little bit more depth. Uh, we're going to have a slightly better menu structure so you can get back into the game a lot faster. Uh, we've made our weapon icons slightly more prominent. Uh, we've added a smash counter which tells you when enemies are going to get smashed. We've changed the health state. Um, and this is feedback that we've had from just releasing the game. So we thought, you know what, let's let's get this feedback in as quickly as possible. Um, so that, you know, we give the users what they want. And has there what what's been the biggest surprise then for releasing on mobile for you guys? That it's very, very quick. <laughs> um, normally the you know, for example, my experience of releasing on working in larger studios, releasing on consoles, there's like a lot of technical uh, requirements um, and specifications that you have to adhere to and uh, a lot of hoops that you have to jump through to get your game out. Uh, same for example, when we were working on the PC version of Ongaku, you know, it, it was, you know, a very, very interesting process. Um, there's a lot of things that we had to kind of do to make sure that everyone was happy. All the stakeholders were confident with the, the build of the game. Um, with with this one, you know, it was, I guess, because it was all internal, the only external approval process was when we submitted it to Apple. Yeah. Uh, and we were keeping our fingers crossed that the app didn't get rejected. Um, and it got accepted first time, and we were like, wow, that's really cool. Uh, we were told, obviously, then from a couple of people that their their approval process isn't as stringent as a console, but that's yeah. the conditioning I've had, really. I was preparing the team to go, guys, we're going to fail. You know, get, just get ready. We're going to fail on something. I don't know what, but we're going to fail on something, so just get ready. But when it came back, yep, you've been accepted. We were like, wow, <laughs> that's cool. And then literally it was like, a week later, we were on the store, and that was just really, really encouraging, you know? And did you guys uh, decide to release the game for free or charge a price? Um, we're charging um, 99 cents, um, which is 59p in the UK. Um, I think that's a, definitely a fair price for the game, because considering what you get. Um, we, we, were gonna, we were thinking of doing a... Um, uh, a light version and that's something that potentially we might do in the future but at this current stage um, we haven't got plans for that considering that the, the low price of the game and, and the actual um, depth and quantity of gameplay you get for it I think you know it's it's very very good value for money yeah and how did you guys feel when you got your first download or um, do you get notified of that or um, not really. You get you get you get uh, updates from. I mean, we we I signed up to a um, AppStoreFigures.com, which is a website. Uh, but at the same time, Apple also give you um, their kind of financial reports, um, and it's good to kind of see. But you get you get those kind of every week or so, telling you how many people have downloaded it and whatnot. Uh, potentially within which territories um, and at this stage you know as I said to you before it we're kind of like you know it's good kind of very it's it's very early days um, yeah. and I think that you know during the Christmas market there have been a lot of you know strong sales from other 
established IPs, you know, for example, you know, even I didn't ignore the EA sale that oh, yeah. uh, the App Store had. You know, they were giving away some, you know, quite expensive games for pretty bargain prices. So, you know, naturally, you know, people who were wanting to spend money are going to go, okay, I know that brand, I know that brand, I'll spend it there and there. And it's just us, because we're taking a risk, we're doing something different, um, but at the same time, it is very, very good gameplay. Uh, you know, we want more people, more and more people to recognize that and, you know, spread the word. Because that's that's only how you, you you potentially look at Angry Birds. You know that's how potentially they started. So you know. You... Yeah. So what are you guys going to do to to market the app to stand above? Because there are so many apps out there, and you know it's it still feels like a lot of people are still developing and trying to pump out more games. How are you going to stand apart? How are you going to get people to notice your app? Well, starting out by doing interviews like this. <laughs> sure. Definitely. Uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, obviously, trying to establish as much press contact as possible okay. uh, with good people so like yourselves. Are, are you contacting uh, places like Touch Arcade, or are there any like 148 apps or something else like that, or um, are there specific places that you're looking into that you know other indie mobile developers can keep in mind as they also um, start to market and promote their own apps? Yeah, I mean, we definitely, you know, in the new early new year, what we plan to do is, I mean, we released the uh, the version over Christmas, which helped us establish, you know, um, getting the game onto the store. Subsequently, we can update it with refinement uh, on the gameplay. And at the same time, in the early new year, we're going to touch base with uh, as many, um, you know, mobile um, kind of publications and at the same time websites who will help uh, potentially review the game and you know do you know as you're doing now you know some some very good coverage which will help get the word out there about say Smash Mouth games and the games that we have not just Drag Tag Smash uh, for the App Store but also on Gaku for the PC and our future plans for on Gaku to take it to the mobile devices. Yeah, are you so yeah? What's next in store then for the studio? Are you guys going to focus on the mobile opportunity? Are you guys going to finish up the stuff for Xbox uh, Live Arcade and WiiWare and stuff like that? What's what's the plan? Um, we're waiting to hear back um, into whether um, we're going to go ahead and or have the option to publish on Xbox Live Arcade. If that option doesn't come into fruition, we look at taking what we've got maybe to the Indie Channel. Uh, subsequently from there, we definitely want to take on Gaku to um, the mobile devices and it's the versions of Ongaku that we've yeah. got. We've got the story mode and we've got the um, the tunematic and the tunematic is the dynamic um, and the it's the, the very very big aspect of the game which allows users to play the play the game with their own music and come up with a very very yeah. dynamic and very accurate note pattern and that's the game that's the part of the game that we think I mean at the moment on the PC you know that's where you've got thousands and thousands of hours of endless gameplay where you can just play it with whatever you want whatever pictures and you know music and even videos you want you can play that and that's something we want to take to the mobile devices because we think that if we can get that right um, and it all boils down to the APIs and the requirements of uh, the uh, mobile devices but if we can you know get permission and whatnot then that could be pretty big and also we're looking at other opportunities with uh, record companies as well. To, to We're talking licensing deals as well to see 
if they would be interested in taking the the products associated with some of their artists and whatnot. Yeah, and with uh, Angeku, you you know it's it's a you know it's a music rhythm game. Did you what did you guys think when you heard of Tap Tap Revenge or you know whatever those kind of music rhythm games coming out on iPhone were? Were you guys thinking at that point that hey we should just start porting this as soon as possible because it seems like they, they gained a lot of traction on the mobile device they've got traction but it all boils down to what, what they've got on the mobile device and in all fairness you know they've, they've got in with the right people to yeah. add weight to their catalog of you know for example music um, artists and, and titles to to add weight to the game itself one of the things that we need to establish first is um, the product and that's I think what we're doing now uh, by releasing it on the PC and getting you know traction and reviews and then subsequently from there once we take it to the mobile device hopefully if we can take the the tunematic version you know it then opens the floodgates to play this game with whatever music uh, players want to play it with and I think that's something that hasn't been done yet. And are you guys looking at iPad, or are you mainly focused on iPhone at the moment? iPhone. No, def- no, 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 definitely I- I- iPad and iPhone. Okay. And what? So, um, are there any other interesting plans coming up for 2011 that you can talk about at this point? Uh, we've got a couple of other games in the pipeline too. Um, uh, I, I don't want to. We haven't made a, any formal sure, announcements sure. yet, but you know. Um, couple of the looking at the way that uh, some of the games of 2010 have defined audiences yeah. we've now looked at the audiences and, and tried to go okay if and it's it's you know kind of boils down to some basic game design principles some p- people design games on gameplay that they want to see um, other people design games based on the the target audience they go okay this is what the audience wants so let's give them a game that they want. And what we're trying to do is something which is like a, a little bit of both, but at the same time, we've recognised from 2010, like there's potentially a new audience that's evolved. Um, from, uh, in all fairness, though, you you could hark back to 2008, 2009, 2010. There's a, a strong uh, user-generated content audience, yeah. um, okay, and that's so. one element that we've incorporated into Ongaku, the whole user-generated content with our um, Melody Maker, you can make your own levels with whatever music you want, but we wanted to, we've come up with a game idea which is based around that. Um, that's all I can yeah. say right now. Um, you know, when you say you've identified this user-generated content audience, I mean, what, what apps have, have shown that? I mean, I think about Angry Birds, there's really not that much user-generated content. There isn't. Uh, um, but have you seen other apps take off yet? That, yeah, that- I mean, what, what about Pocket God, for example? Yeah. Um, no, yeah, definitely. Apocalypse, but is that really user-generated content, or it's just them updating it every week? It's it's a lot of it, it's about you creating your own space, but it's okay, smoke gotcha. and mirrors. It's all smoke and mirrors. Um, you know, allowing the user to do certain things in a certain way hypnotizes them to think, okay, I've done this. This is mine. I've got okay. responsibility for this. But so customization stuff like that. Yeah. Okay. And. Um, you know what? What are your favorite iPhone games uh, at this point? That's a good question. <laughs> um, 
okay, I have to look at what I'm playing at the moment. Just bear with me while I pull out sure. my phone. Um, Drag Tag Smash. <laughs> I'm okay. playing a lot of that at the moment, believe it or not, because uh, we've got um, a running thing going to try and beat the high scores yeah. uh, that we're setting each other. I'm playing a lot of Infinity Blade. I think that's very good. Oh, yeah. And, you know, you mentioned Open Fane. Have you Did you integrate Open Fane into your game? That's something that's coming up in the new year, definitely. Okay. Um, you know, what's so? What's been the learning lessons uh, through throughout the the existence of the studio? Um, you know, what are things that you would have done differently that maybe the audience can benefit from uh, and take as lessons as they develop their own studios? That's a good question. Um... Notice the silence here because I'm doing quite a lot of thinking because yeah, it's been definitely. a while. I mean, it's not that it's not. Oh it's yeah, I mean, it it seems like you know there's just been throughout that time there's just been an explosion of different platforms. There's different business models. There's all these different things, and you know it almost seems like if you have an idea, you almost have to reassess something, everything, like almost every few months because there's some kind of new opportunity or new platform or new discovery that, um, you know, like you said, the market keeps shifting and there's a new way to reach people like almost every year. So how do you balance, you know, having this kind of long-term vision with the fact that you have to be opportunistic with the opportunities that pop up every few months or every six months? Well, the biggest advice I can give is to, um, and it kind of extends from what you said. I think you summarized what we've spoken about very, very succinctly and very, very well. I'd say you, you've got to keep your finger on the pulse of everything yeah. um, to try, you know, to be to be able to keep afloat today uh, and to succeed. You've got to not just keep your finger on the pulse, but preempt what the market yeah. want um, from there on in, and that's from analysis. So keep your, your finger on the pulse of you know the the audience, the the market, um, the the industry, uh, the, the the everything as as much as possible, and that's not an easy thing to do when you've got a full time job. You know, I know that for example, I try and cram in as much game time as possible to see what is on the market now to try and think. Okay, if this is what users are playing now, what they're going to want to play next year, or even you know two years from now. You know, looking at what audiences are out based on conditioning from publishers for platforms like consoles and PCs and mobile devices. If they're playing a certain product on a certain device now, what are they going to be wanting in a couple of years' time? I mean, you only just have to look at, as I said, pretty much near the start of the interview, that you know that there are audiences now that didn't exist, you know, five years ago. You know, there are gamers that didn't exist five years ago. You know, it's almost like... Uh, you, kind of you you've introduced someone to the art of drinking wine and the first time they taste it they go oh that's horrid and then subsequently they get to develop a taste for it and subsequently they become you know more kind of an ardent connoisseur of what is a, a good wine and, and a cheap wine and you know at the end of the day uh, it's the same with gaming you know once upon so, a time gamers were geeks and now now look you know they're everywhere <laughs> so you're saying that even the audience they may grow tired of a genre like, you know, because, um, you know, I think about the casual gaming market and you always hear about, well, it's just always about some variation of the hidden object game. But from what you just said, it's more like 
as as people play more of these games, at least um, you know they're going to develop a a change or a desire for new types of games. Yeah, of course. Okay. I mean, think if, well, if not you just think new types it, of content, but new types of games. Like, yeah, definitely. Uh, okay. I mean, how often? I mean, at the moment, we're, we're we're brought up on an existing staple of genres that have been around for the last two or three decades. Yeah, um, the first port of call is obviously the first-person shooter. Yeah, sure. The most popular genre that there is. Now, based on that, how soon is it going to be before the FPS gamers want to? I mean, look at look at within the, yeah. the genre of FPS. How many cross-hybrid ideas have injected themselves into the FPS genre, and then they've stood above the crowd? I mean, you know, you could name a few. Yeah. Like for example, Portal being one of them. You know, defining. Um, puzzle elements into a first-person um, interact interaction um, environment, and then before you know it, you've got a standalone product, which is different from the rest of the crowd, which is why it did so well. And fairly soon, gamers are gonna, you know, the more sophisticated gamers who are higher up the gaming tree, have developed this taste on a faster level. They want the new. They continuously want the new. And the, the gamers who are climb or starting to climb the tree. They, they, you know, they've got this staple diet of games they like to play, night to play, but fairly soon they're going to get bored of playing those same games again and again and again and go, you know what, I want to play something different because I feel I don't feel that this is challenging me anymore or I've seen this too many times. I've played these games before. I'm bored of them. I want something new and different, you know? And how has your game design um, methodology or process changed over the course of um, running the studio? Is it pretty much the same as it initially has been or have you changed anything? Um, I've tried to be more dynamic um, looking at the markets and looking at the development cycles per product like the iPhone development cycle and the, the methods we used whilst they I'd say if you looked at the way we made on Gaku they were different the, the fundamental processes were the same so it's all about picking up these fundamental processes as I, as I said before and making sure that you know when and how to apply them so that you get the best out of your team and the time that you've got available on a product. Um, and, you know, if, you, if you've got that fundamental process ingrained within you, you'll know how and when to, to kind of um, look at what, what you're doing at the moment and then try and establish the tasks that need to be done to, to get the best out of everything so that you come up with a very strong result. And you know what are what are say two or three things that you wish you could have done or would have changed or wish you would have known um, or done differently, um, given what you now know. So what are two or three different things that you would do, wish you could have done differently, given what you now know, um, through the whole experience of starting and running a studio. Um. Again, that's a difficult question. It's it's a difficult question because it's not it's been a very very dynamic process and you know I suppose some of the team things I would have liked to have done differently were get other people involved sooner but it's all boils down to it's like a how do I say it? you you can't do one thing without unless another's in place so for example yeah. I would have loved to have offered other people jobs but I needed money in place and I couldn't have money in place because I needed to build resource and before kind of establishing a product you needed to kind of you know have 
avenues and credibility and without that credibility you know it's kind of like you know putting chess pieces in place so that you get you, you know when to make the right maneuver and if I look back um, I would have liked to have had certain people in place sooner but then again I would have liked to have had some funding in place sooner yeah. but then again I would have had, liked to have had a lot of the core gameplay sooner but to do that I needed the team sooner so it's a kind of a chicken and egg thing if you see what I mean so and it's a difficult question for me to answer that one really you I think you mentioned that you guys did try to go for funding in 2009 um, is that yes we did yeah we, we secured some private investment um, in 2009 um, which helped uh, with the, the development of Ongaku and on um, so Drag you, Pack Smash did you feel that was a worthwhile experience? Um, you know, smaller game developers, some of them are, you know, have the opportunity now to get more funding because games are moving to, to a more mainstream recognition. Do you feel that that's, uh, that's something worth looking into? Um, if you've got the opportunity to take what you've got and show it to potential investors, then yeah, you should do it. If you've got like I said, a track record behind you, you've got more chance of securing that investment. If you look better on paper too, you've got a credible company, you've got resources available, you've got a team waiting for you to, to kind of green light the project. If you, you've got the, the funding in place, you've got an avenue to take your project, you know, once it's been finished, you know, you've got all of that down, then yeah, you've, you've got all the ticks in the boxes. And that's been the challenge, you know, making sure that all those ticks have been in the boxes. And it's not been an easy thing to do, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, and I mean, have you? How have you had to change your game process, our game development process, now that you have funding? I mean, do you have to talk to these investors frequently? Do you have to make sure you release? Uh, I guess maybe it'll inspire you to release faster. I mean, what what are some of the changes that funding uh, does to a studio, like for your it makes studio? You, <laughs> makes you a lot more. Um, I know that when we were doing it in our spare time, yeah. um, there was less focus on time, and um, we had more time to focus on, you know, kind of exploring our options. Now, with obviously um, the stakeholders, we have to kind of make sure we're we're operating uh, as efficiently as possible, but at the same time, not compromising on some of these phases, um, which obviously maintain the the credibility of the product so we've got to make sure that um, you know time is definitely a, a key factor because obviously the longer you take on something the more it will cost the more it will cost then those costs potentially could bleed you dry uh, so you've got to make sure that everything you've learned so far is applied and applied as efficiently as possible um, and I know that short turnaround games are one way to work within strict budgets uh, with short, you know, small, very small teams, um, is definitely a way forward. And do you, where do you, where do you see the future of your studio then going, um, long term? Is well, it, I yeah. Sorry, I, I was going to say in answer to that question. Ideally, um, you know, given the opportunity of um, being successful with some of the products, I would like to have a core team of around ten people. Uh, split across two projects. Um, yeah, I think that's... And, those, and so these two projects could just be any kind of random projects, just interesting gameplay ideas that you guys have. No, I guess it would depend, really. Um, 
you know, for example, it would depend on the specialisms of the individuals involved. It would depend on the opportunities. Like I said, you've got to be adaptable in today's yeah. market. It would depend on the the opportunities available. It could, you know, for example, if it's one team working on a, a console game whilst another team's working on a mobile game, that's fine. Or two two teams working on mobile games, you know. But you've got to look realistically that okay, if there's more opportunity to if you've got an established product, an established brand on a mobile device, um, then do you want to build upon that IP and keep reiterating it? You know, like milking a cash cow, so to speak. Yeah. Or do you want to take a step and go, okay, whilst we milk this cash cow and provide updates for it, you know, we'll, we'll take another step and provide some new gameplay experience, again, on the same device, because it's proven successful in the past. But these are all business opportunities you've got to um, evaluate at any given point. But I know that, you know, given the opportunity, I would like to ideally have a core team. And it all boils down to resource. If you've got a core team available of very talented individuals that enjoy working with, um, you know, I'd like to work with about 10 people, you know, who you're very close with, and you know, a family-knit community. Uh, and on top of that, you're very comfortable because you've got very good established um, intellectual property. It's successful. It's critically acclaimed. And it's financially viable. So that's what I'm talking about. And how do you keep morale then in the studio as you're kind of developing your initial products? Um, you know, you started the studio, but the people that you have on, you know, they're definitely, they didn't start the studio. So how do you keep the morale of, quote, employees? Um, it's kind of, uh, <laughs> it's an interesting process really because um, we all kind of keep each other's morales up. Um, and it all depends on certain things. For example, sometimes if I'm having a very difficult day, I can be very, very, um, you know, um, grumpy or whatnot. And some of the other guys will lighten the load by making jokes or whatnot and kind of, you know, focusing on what we're doing and saying, look at this exciting thing, which will lift your mood. And vice versa, if some of the other guys are down, you do the same kind of thing. And that way we're all kind of, you know, keeping each other up and keeping each other motivated. And I think that's really cool because, you know, you know, I'll be honest with you, in, in that kind of small environment, it's difficult, you know, to kind of put on a face. And sometimes I do have to, you know, brave it as the, the kind of, um, you know, the, the founder of the company. It's, it's, a, it's kind of difficult to do that. But, you, you know, when you're working with people, a very small team, it's hard to kind of keep your guard up. 100% of the time and in <laughs> yeah. fact it's a, it's unnatural to do that and sometimes you, you're only human and you, you do kind of go okay I'm not happy about this or uh, you know I'd like this to, to be better for this reason and you know you've got to have that open relaxed relationship with your um, work colleagues so that they understand and they can help you and then they can by helping you they melt, make the situation better for not just you but for the company as well. And, you know, releasing games, like releasing to the iPhone, that definitely has, like, how did your, what did you feel was, um, how did your studio feel? How did everyone in the studio feel when you released that game or it was published to the App Store? Did that raise morale? Did that change the, the dynamics of the studio feeling? Or No, every, obviously, whenever we have a release product, we're all very, very excited, very, very, you know, motivated. Um, whenever we get any press coverage, again, you know, uh, if it's obviously favourable, most, you know, pretty much most of the time it's obviously been very, very favourable. We're all very, very motivated and excited, and it just kind of 
pushes us on to go okay let's get, let's hit the next hurdle let's let's you know jump over it and let's keep going you know let's go as 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 far as we can with what we're doing great and where can where can listeners find out more about your games and you know maybe start playing or checking them out Okay, so there's a number of different places. First of all, our website, www.smashmouthgames.com. Smashmouth Games, all one word. And you can read up about the company, who we are, what games we've done. You can visit the Ongaku website, which is www.ongakugame.com. And, and you can, can you spell that? Yeah, Ongaku Game is O-N-G-A-K-U, then game, G-A-M-E, all one word, dot com. And on that website, you can download a demo of Ongaku and play it. And you can see uh, a video of it as well. And you can buy the game from there too. And there are other um, portals, that you, links to other portals. If you want to buy it from there, you can download it from other portals too. Um, you can find out about Drag Tag Smash on the Smash Mouth Games website I mentioned before. And also we've got a YouTube channel uh, called Smash Mouth Games. If you type, go into YouTube and in the search box type in Smash Mouth Games, um, our YouTube channel will come up where you can see some videos of our games. Um, yeah, that's that pretty much covers, you know, finding out some more information about us and our games. Okay, and, and then obviously there's a link to the App Store to also check out um, your, app, your iPhone app. That's right. Um, just bear with me a second. Sure. I'm just having a look if that is on the front page of our. One second. If you go to the App Store yeah. and do a search for Drag Tag Smash, okay. um, drag. And so that's D R A G yep. space T A G space S M A S H. Yep. Okay. Um, our game should come up. Okay, great. Um, thank you very much for your time. And uh, thanks again for your insights uh, for other game developers, indie game developers who are looking to start their own studio. Okay, thank you very much, Action. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you Definitely. very much. Take care. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.